Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to 2 Peter chapter 3 as well as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So we'll start in both of those, one way or the other. 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll also use 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, first couple of verses there, in a Bible study I've entitled, The Day of the Lord. Now in the last week of Jesus' ministry, there was a lot to process. It happened pretty rapidly, the turn of events that would bring about the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into heaven in those final, not only in that final week, but in the time after his resurrection. I would say that in many ways it came as a shock to his disciples, although he did prepare them ahead of time. Uh, He would talk about his death. He would talk about being lied about. He would talk about being taken advantage of. He would even talk about being buried and also rising again. But you know as well as I do, there are times when we just have selective hearing, and it's hard to hear things, it's hard to receive things, and it was an up and down last week of their life. Just consider a few things that happened in that final week, those final days that they spent with Jesus before he was crucified. In John chapter 14, verse 1, the word during that time was fear not. So they were given instruction to fear not. Remember, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And the response was, well, you know, we're not sure where you're going. And they're having a process. Fear not. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Then, just moments before his betrayal, he told his disciples, rise and pray. Like, stay focused. Come with me and pray. As he withdrawn with them in Luke 22, verse 41, it says he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, he had come to his disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. So fear not. Rise and pray. A third thing that they received after the resurrection was, oh foolish ones, oh foolish ones. Luke chapter 24, verse 25. He said to them, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he says, fear not, rise and pray, O foolish ones. And then there's another one surrounding his ascension in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they that pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. And so they've got all of these thoughts, and we could go through and make probably at least 10 more things that were swirling around the mind of the disciples in those last days. They were facing an unknown future. And we've learned over the years, and it's worth repeating, that it's wise to trust our unknown futures to a well-known God. The Bible is where we learn of God and His faithfulness and His character We see how God's been faithful to others, that he'll too be faithful to us. We learn of his love and his care and concern. Even today, as we were praying in Jeremiah 3, his care and concern for the nation of Israel, for the people of God, he says, I'm going to give you shepherds according to my heart. 
You're going to be able to tell the difference between those that are speaking on my behalf and those that are lying to you because they're going to share my heart. It's going to be evident. It's going to be clear. Or how about this in Jeremiah 29, 11? God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so we know that whatever the future holds, we can be confident in the one who holds our future. Now, in the midst of Jesus leaving, on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, in his return, in, in his sudden return, he says this, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Matthew 24, 36, no one knows the day or the hour of the return of Jesus Christ. But wouldn't you know it, so many have come and gone saying that they know the day and the hour, that they know the precise time, or, you know, still yet future, or are there even those that say, no, he already came. Some would say you're living in the tribulation period now, or some would say you're living in the millennial period now. And there are pamphlets and emails and books and videos. They're all wrong when they predict the future coming of the Lord to the day, to the hour. And even though the Bible says this, still many people come and go that have predicted over the years. They know exactly because they're, they're mathematicians or they have figured all the time or they, they have taken the Hebrew letters and they've moved them all around or they have some secret text that they found and Jesus said it very clearly. Now there is a big difference, as we'll see in a moment, there is a big difference uh, between predicting the exact time and then stepping back and saying, you know what, it's pretty clear the days in which we live. And it's pretty clear the seasons in which we live. Remember, Jesus, he rebuked those that were living during his time. He goes, you guys can, you can pick the weather. You can figure out what the weather is going to be. But you don't understand the days and times and seasons in which you live. So there's a big difference between specifically, you know, thinking, man, like someone might say, man, I really believe the Lord's going to come back in my lifetime. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. You know, because we don't know how long you're going to live. It could be another 50 years. It could be 50 minutes. But the idea of, man, I just get that sense. I feel like the Lord's coming back. I look at the time around and I can sense that. Now, that's a big difference between going, man, this is the day. This is the hour. Sell everything. Be prepared. Let's go outside and look up because it's going to happen in this moment. Jesus says nobody knows. But here's the thing. With all of the ups and downs, with all of the confusion and fears, with all of the selective hearing. We look at the disciples and go, oh, how could they do that? But that's, that's, that's us. We're living in a different time, but that's us. We hear things. We're troubled by things. We're reading one scripture, and then someone sends us another one, and then we're introduced to this. And then, and then before you know it, we're like, I, I don't know. Am I, am I foolish? Am I worrisome? Do I really believe in that? And you start to doubt, and you have all of these emotions that flow. And then you're like, well, what is the future going to hold for me? What is the future going to hold? That is a common feeling I think we all have, a desire. We want to know the future. What does God have in store for us? Now understand what you may be having, people have had throughout the ages. And Israel had the same kind of yearnings. But with them... God gave them the prophets to speak directly to what they're facing and what they're going through. They spoke of a time that God would reign on the earth and bring in an everlasting peace. And this all revolved around the coming of Messiah. But here's the thing. Messiah came and left. This is first century here. The yearnings for the nation of Israel were focused and centered upon God and they were focused and centered upon him, God fulfilling his promise of sending the Savior. And the Savior came and left. And many of the same things they were facing before he came, they're still facing. And then he promises, I'll return. I'll return. And that's the great promise of the future. The soon return of Jesus Christ. But we're living in the big middle. Jesus came and left, and he hasn't returned yet. And we have life to be lived. Notice now, 
with that in mind, notice where we pick up. Let's go back to verse 8. We covered last time, but for way of context. It says, but beloved, this is 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Hold your places here. Let's go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and put together Peter with the insights that we get from Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. So to the left, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, notice with me in verse 1. He says to this church, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that this day should overtake you as a thief. Times and seasons. You'd like to write in your Bibles, right there in verse, verse 1, you can circle the word times. It's the Greek word chronos. And it speaks of time, as we would understand it, a sequence of events. So that when you look at the days in which you live, you can see a sequence of events. You can see things of the times in which you live. And then he uses the word seasons. That word seasons is the Greek word kairos. And it means a fixed and definite time. So as you're looking around, you see, okay, there's a sequence of things happening, and we can see them, but there's also a fixed and definite time. So there are a sequence of events that are going to happen in a point in time, and he says, concerning these things, you have no need that I, that I should write to you. You can see them, you can experience them, and you can compare what you're living right now and what you're seeing right now with the way that you've been taught. Or with us, right? The Old Testament, Israel were given prophets to give insight on their certain situations. And then what do we learn in Hebrews? That God has spoken in time past through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us how? By his son. His son, the revelation, the word incarnate. And so God has given us insight on the days in which we live. The church was thinking about and wondering about all that would take place. Paul had taught the church in Thessalonica about death and dying. He gave them insight about the rapture of the church. Uh, I've gone into this in other studies, but for, for our time today, the rapture of the church is Jesus Christ coming for his saints, whereas the return of the Lord is him coming with his saints. And between those two events is separated by seven years that we know as the Great Tribulation. We can also look at that time as the day of the Lord, as a re the return, the return. So many prophecies in the Bible are given, but there's none more detailed than the day of the Lord. It's used over and over again. Jot it down in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand. So when you think of the day of the Lord, it's not a term that's filled with a lot of joy and a lot of celebration, especially as you see what surrounds it. Notice again in 1 Thessalonians 5, you see what surrounds this time is not a beautiful time. He says, 
First of all, it's going to come as a great surprise because there'll be those in verse 3 that live with peace and safety and then sudden destruction, sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains. It's not a term filled with a lot of joy. The day of the Lord is a painful time, a time of judgment. And now, even though we use the English word day, understand that the day of the Lord does not refer to a 24-hour period. Rather, the day of the Lord is a period of time. For example, we would describe today that we live in an age, or you could even say a day of grace. It's a season of grace. It's a time where the long-suffering of God is for salvation. The long-suffering of God is salvation. And God is being very gracious. What we deserve currently, what the nations deserve, what the world deserves currently, is not taking place because God is reaching out in patience and long-suffering in grace. God is patiently today, as I speak, holding back judgment so that many would come to a saving knowledge in him. Now, let me just say that's true globally, but it's also true personally. I mean, it's so encouraging to think that through. It is true globally, and we can get caught up in all the global uh, things that are happening today, the rebellion, the resistance, the stubbornness, all that's happening in a world that's under the sway of the wicked one. But it's also true for you individually, in your own life right now, for those hearing my voice. The good news of the gospel is that today, if you will come, if you will respond, if you will acknowledge your sin before a holy and a mighty and righteous God, and you'll repent of your sin and receive the gift of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ, that you will now experience the grace of God in its fullness. Right now you're experiencing the grace of God in, in, a, in a sense where God is waiting on you. But to experiencing him in its fullness, God is patiently holding back judgment on you. Now, of course, many people hear that and go, oh, you know, I don't deserve judgment. I don't deserve judgment. But you know as well as I do, that's not true. You know as well as I do that you're not a perfect person, that you haven't done everything right with everybody forever in your life, but rather you and I deserve judgment. Now, the difference between those listening to me is simple. There are those listening to me today that the Bible says that the judgment of God rests upon you right now. Or in another place, the Bible says the wrath of God is upon you right now. And for others, you have taken the role in the position where Jesus Christ took the wrath and judgment of God upon himself on your behalf. He has st stood in the gap for you. And you've embraced him. You see, the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. One day the day of grace will end and the day of the Lord will come. A time when God will judge the world and punish the nations. Turn over to Isaiah now, chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. We see there will come a day where the judgment will come and the world will be judged. It's predicted even back in Isaiah chapter 13. Pick up there in verse 6 with me. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. And they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Faces will be like flames. And you say, well, what is this? Verse six, verse nine. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth and will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. That's what Peter is describing here 
as a place of encouragement. And you go, come on, Ed, how could this possibly be encouraging? And in many ways, it's not. In many ways, to think of what the reward will be for those that reject Messiah. What will the reward be for those that say, I, I believe in God, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't accept or receive the morality of God. I don't accept or receive the word of God. I don't accept or receive the judgment of God. There are those that say they believe in God, but in all the while they've made them a God in their own image, little g. And they've taken and put this piece together. And how could God ever, how could God ever do this? How could God ever follow through with this? But that's not the real question to ask. The real question to ask is, what kind of God would create humanity, give them soul autonomy and freedom to behave any way that they want, see their lost condition, and send his only begotten sons, innocent and pure, to die on their behalf, knowing full well that so many would reject him and resist him? The judgment of God... I, that, that longing, even, even a little bit of a taste in your life of desiring justice, feeling like things just aren't right, wanting things to be right, or living in such a way where you've experienced injustice, that desire to say, you know, I wish things were right, was given to you by God because the very character of God is he is just and he is righteous and he is true. Peter describes it to these that are on the, hey, look, God is patient. He's not willing that any should perish. That's where we ended last time. That was our focus. We left us so encouraged. We left encouraged that the, the year before we got saved, God didn't, Jesus didn't come back then. And then we're still praying for people that we love and we care for. And that's how we ended our study last time. And now, but now Peter's going, okay, it was encouraging, but understand the day of grace will end and the day of the Lord will come. Can I just say on a personal level, for those of you dabbling in sin, for those of you, you know, doing things that you shouldn't be doing, you know, the day of the Lord will come in your life as well. You won't get away with anything. The Bible speaks of sin finding you out. It's not like God doesn't know. He already knows. You're not going to be found out by God, but your sin will find you out. It will appear in just the wrong time in your life. It will catch up to you especially those of you that follow Christ. There's no need for you to be dabbling in things that will destroy you. There's no need for you to be involved in things that are destroying you now. But in a broader sense, as Peter is writing to these believers that are displaced, these believers that are discouraged, these believers that are on the run, these believers that were like wondering, why won't you settle this now? Why won't you stop this now? Why won't you just put your, your foot on the Roman Emperor Nero and end my trial now? Why won't you just stop it now? Hey, listen, God is not slack concerning his promises. God is not slack concerning his promises, but he's long-suffering. Why, why won't you put your foot down on the injustices today? God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. We're living in the long-suffering of God, even as I speak. However, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night at a time when you're not expecting, sudden, unexpected. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements melt. We're back in 2 Peter now, chapter 3, verse 10. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This is prophesied in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Peter's bringing it home in the New Testament. Many people will look at the day of the Lord and assign it to the great tribulation period in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. The process of the gracious judgment of God. We can get caught up in the judgments that take place in the last three and a half years, the heavy ones, the, the difficult ones, but the entirety of the seven-year period is known as the great tribulation and to live under, on a, under a fake peace and security, under the rulership of the Antichrist. That's just as much the judgment of God as the last half of the book of Revelation, the last half of the great tribulation period. 
and all kinds of supernatural things happen. The elements are melting with fervent heat. The earth is burned up. Now there was that phrase in 1 Thessalonians 5. There was that phrase in verse 3 where it spoke of peace and safety. There is going to be that lulling effect that come upon people just before the time of judgment comes. A peace treaty between Israel and the Islamic nations and the Antichrist. The rebuilding of the temple. If you can imagine what that would be like to rebuilding of the temple. For those of you that have the privilege of going with us to Israel, one of our stops is the Temple Institute. And let me tell you something. These people are serious about rebuilding the temple. They have everything, all of the elements, everything ready. And even if you're reading up, even during this time with COVID and such, if you continue to follow the news in Israel, which I would encourage you to do, it's the epicenter of all the end times. They are now, they just received uh, permission. The Jews just received permission. This is monumental to have silent prayer on the Temple Mount. Monumental. I don't even know how to describe how and, and how this is all going to go down because when we take tours up and we're on the Temple Mount, they won't even allow our guide to hold up a map and teach us out loud. They're walking around and, and one of our trips, they, they took the map right out of our guide's hand. I mean, it was, it's, it's unbelievable what's happening, but you know, everything is being put into place and we're the generation that are seeing things come together. I mean, some of you are even alive uh, to see the nation of Israel come back as a nation itself. I mean, that's unbelievable. that You get to see that with your own eyes. This lulling effect comes. Peace and safety. Everything's going to be okay. We've visualized world peace. And here it is. We've decided to save the planet. Here we are. Don't worry. Everything's going to be happy. And Jesus said right up to this time, the world will be swirling in chaos and confusion, preparing for a peace and safety message. In Luke 21, verse 25, Jesus said, there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and in the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Literally, there'll be that feeling like there's no way out. And I mentioned already the Antichrist, that biblical world ruler that come on the scene, that comes on the scene. He doesn't just like come on the scene, although it will appear sudden, He's been groomed and prepped and be prepared for this very role. And the nations of the world will yield their sovereignty to him and their leadership to him. And he will form a treaty with the Jews to rebuild the temple and there will be a false peace for three and a half years. And then Paul says back in 1 Thessalonians 5, can you go back there with me? So I'm gonna go back and forth because... This is a familiar picture here. Jesus uses the same thing in Matthew 24, but notice in chapter 5, this is super important. You wonder, why would we be studying such things? Well, first of all, we study verse by verse, so we're going to go through the entirety of the Bible, but this is such a relevant message for the days in which we live. This is it. This is, this is one of the insights of what is happening in the world today. This is it. All in preparation. So notice what he says in verse 3. He says in chapter 5, And they, for when they say, there's a distinction between you believers and they, they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on them. Why? Because that's how a thief in the night, sudden destruction, unexpected, happens quickly. However, it says, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they shall not escape. Jesus spoke in Matthew 24, verse 8, that that's the beginning of sorrows, labor pains. Now, in our fellowship, uh, we've been blessed over the years to see so many women uh, give birth. Uh, we've watched them from the beginning of conception and see uh, through the process, and then up here, eventually, we dedicate their kids, and it's a beautiful thing, wonderful to watch. It's a wonderful blessing and challenging at the same time with the pain and agony of birth. Now, when a woman's going to give birth, there are certain signs. You can see them with your own eyes. First, she tends to get bigger in one place over time. Then she begins to feel movement of that baby. 
as the baby stretches and grows in the womb. Then she has that general experiences, that general growth over a nine-month period, and then toward the end, she knows as the labor pains come, they come small and infrequent. Now, let me say, I'm not speaking from experience, of course. This has been told to me and verified. But as you, as you hear, you have the, the small and infrequent times, but over time, they become more intense. Right, ladies? More intense and closer together. And as you feel they're more intense and closer together, the frequency, listen, the frequency and intensity of those pains tell you that that baby is coming soon. And Jesus and Paul Peter, they all use the same illustration, something that would be relatable in the human realm. The labor pains, frequent and intense. The more frequent and intense they become, the closer you know. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul is saying. These signs are obvious. No one's going to know the day or the hour. Don't allow anyone to predict to you the day or the hour, both past or future or present for that matter, the signs will be obvious. You'll know the times, the chronos and the seasons, kairos. You're going to know. They're going to become more intense and more frequent. The pains will be different than the earlier pains that you experienced. Whereas you were going through maybe five, ten years ago, let's say, and you saw some technology invented, or you saw things. I remember years ago as a new believer, a friend of mine giving me a pic, I think it was a, a copy of Omni Magazine. And uh, that's back when magazines were what we communicated with. And he gave me a copy, and on the front of that, on the front cover of the magazine was a person with a barcode uh, imprinted on their forehead. And it was the new technology that was being used in supermarkets at the time in the early 90s that were going to speed up and help you identify what you were buying and check out at the grocery line. And then, of course, you look at it and go, wait a minute, there, everything's going to have an identity and you can just swipe it and it, you won't be able. And the big thing about the, the, the barcode was, what do you mean? You can't buy or sell without the barcode? And it was just a little hint. And we look back and go, look what's happening in our world. Ah, oh, that's not true. Oh, oh, look where we are today. And we're simply looking at 30 years of time. More frequent. More intense. Where in many ways, technology has far out surpassed what we would ever think. Sudden destruction and great tribulation comes upon the unprepared. The unprepared. In Matthew 24, 21, it says, Then there will be great tribulation such as never been since the beginning of the world until this time no nor shall ever be. Come back to Peter now. Now we do believe here at Calvary that, and we teach very strongly and biblically in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. You can just go to our, our app or our website, put in the word rapture and Studies are available there, biblically walking you through the doctrine of the rapture. We believe that it happens prior to the seven-year tribulation period, not midway, but prior to the seven years. But even so, we're alive now on the earth. So we do expect the return of the Lord, but we're alive now on the earth. And notice he says, in verse 11, he says, therefore... So God's long-suffering, he's saving people, it's for salvation, but the day of the Lord will come, the day of justice will arrive, the, the day of consummation will come. Therefore, for those that are alive on the earth, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons should you be, or some of your translations say, ought you to be, in holy conduct and godliness. What kind of people you need to be now in your life today? The world, it's not our home. This isn't our permanent home. We are both citizens of earth, but also more primarily citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. This is not our home. We're just passing through. So Jesus, he comes on the scene and what does he say? 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's first. That's the order of citizenship. You're a citizen of heaven first, and then a citizen of earth. We're to be faithful on earth. But the question is, what kind of life do you need to live? What should you, what ought you to do? What should you, how should you live your life? He gives you, he gives you, he asks and answers the question. And I just find a lot of Christians don't want to do this. A lot of believers don't want to live this way. They want to get caught up in the constellations. They want to get caught up in the, oh, look at what's happening here. They want to get caught up in all of the details, the labor pains. But you know, even for a mom with labor pains, the significance is much more than the labor pains. The significance is a delivery of that baby and the health of that mom. It's not all, look at the labor pains. I mean, uh, you can try it. Let me know how it goes. But there's a, a woman great with labor and great with child, and she's hurting. Oh, tell me about the pain. Tell me about the pain. Explain the pain to me. I want to run a book on you about your pain. No, it's the baby. It's the baby. The health and safety of the baby and the health and safety of the mom. That's what's important. Oh, the intensity and the timing of the pain and pain management, of course, but it's not priority. And how easy it is to have things flipped around. You know what's important right now? What's important right now is the coming of the Lord. That's what's important. Not all the signs and things. I mean, obviously we're going to know, we're going to watch them, but just acknowledge what they are and get your eyes back on the Lord. Acknowledge what they are and look to him. And just what he says, how do you do that? Number one, holy conduct, holiness. Yes, it is God's will for you to live a holy life. Jesus would even teach us, be holy as I am holy. Be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. Obviously, that could be misunderstood from a pulpit where, you know, a pastor's telling you, you should just live according to some strict code of conduct. No, no. As you abide in Christ, his holiness is your holiness. When you and I abide in Christ, his desire is my desire. His love, my love. His care, my care. So that as I'm praying, as I'm drawing near to him, he's drawing near to me. And my life becomes his life. And I mean, in a real abiding relationship, you, you, you've experienced this because you've had the Lord work in your life and you step back and go, where did that come from? It was a moment of abiding, friend. The Lord was with you and in you and around you. And you were with him, in him, and, and enjoying him. And he was using you. Yes, number one, holy conduct. Number two, godliness. The church is to be different than the world in tough times. That's what Peter says. The church is to be different than the world, in especially, I would even say, in tough times. He says, hey, God is patient. He's allowing Nero on the run, stay alive, man, do what you got to do. But the day of the Lord's coming, don't worry, the day of the Lord's coming, it's going to be, God's going to keep his promises. But since he hasn't come yet, what kind of people should we be? We should be living holy, godly. That godliness could also be defined as God-likeness, the characteristics of God we live down in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. You're just going to be a different person. There's going to be a distinction. People that knew you before will say, man, what's going on with you? What happened with you? What, where, where did this come from? You're going to, there'll be a distinction because you're born again. A Christian that looks like and sounds like and lives like Jesus, holy conduct, compassionate care, godly lifestyles, seeing, loving God and loving our neighbor, our neighbor that was created in the image of God. Not only that, but thirdly, notice he says, you also to live looking for the coming of the Lord. How are you supposed to live your life? You're to look for the coming of the day of God. You're to look for it. You're to look for and hasten. Hasten. Now, hasten means to speed up. And some has interpreted that like we control the coming of the Lord, like we can make it happen faster. But I don't believe that's the only definition, and I don't believe we can make it happen faster. We hasten his coming by preaching the gospel. We hasten his coming by compelling folks to come to Jesus and receive his love. 
We live in a habitual way. We're not going to artificially change the times and seasons or the day and hour of his coming. We don't know. But by hastening, we're living in such a way with that habitual expectation of the rapture of the church, of the day of the Lord, where the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements. The rapture of the church happens first, and then the day of the Lord begins right then and there. Notice verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isn't that the truest statement? Don't you look for a new heaven and a new earth? Aren't you longing for a place where righteousness dwells? Aren't you longing for a place where sickness and death and disease and division and difficulty and every other D word you could come up with are just dissolved and gone? I mean, do you ever just dream about the new heaven and the new earth? Do you ever dream about that being reunited with your loved ones for all of eternity? Do you ever dream about the goodness of God, the King Jesus ruling and reigning, the fulfillment? I mean, I know we still, even in our Bible study, we could study the Bible forever and still have a limited knowledge of all that is ours in Christ. Aren't you looking forward to the day when your limited knowledge will be full? I mean, it'll be complete. What John said, John at 99 years old or so, John says, he says, there's coming a day when we will know even as we're known. I look forward to that day. That day where God's righteousness supersedes. Now, here's another way that we hasten, and this is where we'll close. Would you turn over to Mark chapter nine? It really is consistent too with our prayer points as we were praying together as a church. And I hope you guys listening in on the radio right now uh, that your church prays together, that it is a regular habit that as the church, we pray together, whether it's directed, whether it's spontaneous, whether it's before your gathering, in your gathering, after your gathering, that we're a house of prayer. And so we were praying during our time and praying for more laborers. Look at what Jesus says. You want to hasten the coming of the Lord? Get busy with the Lord and pray. Notice verse 35. Mark chapter 9, verse 35. He says, he says, and he sat down and called the 12 and said, if any des- anyone desires to be first, he shall be last and the servant of all. And he set a little child and set him in the midst. And then he had taken him in his arms. He said to him, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And he says, John answered saying, teacher, we saw someone who doesn't follow us casting out demons and we forbade them because they don't follow us. He says, don't you forbid them for no one can work a miracle in my name can soon speak after evil after me for he who is not against us is on our side and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now that is not the text I wanted, but it's a good text nonetheless. I do think it fits well. The text I was looking for was that time where Jesus looks out and he sees the fields that are ripe for harvest. And what does he tell? He says, pray for more laborers to go into the harvest. But it fits really well here because it also is in a place of simplicity that as you're praying for the soon return of the Lord, and you're praying for more laborers into the harvest, and you're praying for God to use you in greater ways, and you're praying for God to meet you where you are, number one, you are the answer to your prayer. You are the laborer in the harvest. You're not just praying more of them, you're praying more of us. You're praying that God would send you into the harvest. The fields are ripe for harvest, and we need an army a spiritual army of believers who will live for the Lord, who will speak up, who will speak out, and speak to a generation that's going to face the day of the Lord. A generation that's going to face the day of the Lord. You know, we're all excited that we're believers and we're born again and we're going to meet the We're going to meet the Lord in the air in the rapture. But what about everyone else? The day of the Lord is a solemn time. 
The day of the Lord is not anything we would wish on our worst enemy. Facing the full wrath and judgment of God. Facing the fullness. And so our hearts are broken. That while the world is always going to be the world, we have to be the church. We're the only ones that will be the church. There's no other group of people, no other organization, nothing, no other organism on the earth that is the church other than the church. So hold your places and mark over to Matthew now, chapter 9. An angel sent me a text and let me know where that is. Verse 35. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Here's the heart. You want to hasten the coming of the Lord? Get on board with what God's doing on the earth today. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And too too often, church, we just don't see the wandering sheep as Jesus does. We just don't see our city like Jesus does. We just don't see the difficulties of our world like he does. We don't see it even in the distinction between the day of the Lord and a person born again, being delivered from the judgment of God. We're too caught up in the narratives of the day. And there's always some new narrative, some new way to influence, some new way to get your attention, to make you think about something other than, listen, there's only one true narrative on the condition of the world at any time. It's God's perspective. And you'll never and I will never gain God's perspective if we're not allowing the word of God to come into us and we're not receiving what Jesus is teaching us. Like, like the, the, the common phrase today, if we're not picking up what Jesus is putting down and what he has now for 2,000 years. When he sees Jerusalem, the very people, again, you get the broad picture. And I always love this as I'm coming up and I come up all the way down uh, Piccadilly or whatever it is down on Hampton and you make that left turn on Hampton and it's like one of the highest points to see the whole panorama of our city. This is a high, where our building is is a real high point too but it's higher down there east. If you never go east, go. There's even cars there at sunset. They park up there to take their pictures and see the sunset over the panorama, at least a good portion of the panorama of our city from the perspective of our little building here. And you know, Jesus, if he was up on Piccadilly or whatever that street is up there, if he was up at Hampton there and, and you and I were standing with him, certainly he would, he would have a broken heart over our city. The city that has people ripping off our catalytic converters, putting graffiti all over the church building, ripping off your tools from within your garage, robbing the bank on the corner, Stealing from the restaurant owners. Turning their backs on one another and participating in the division and coming against the police officers and all that's, ha- all that's happening. Jesus would see that. And I believe he'd respond just the same way he is here. He'd have compassion and a broken heart. And I think a lot of our problem is that we just don't have a broken heart. We don't have a broken heart over our own personal con- condition. We're so arrogant and prideful. We're always right. Everyone else is always wrong. Personally, the church has that reputation too. I mean, it's a hard situation where you have the truth, but then you never admit you're wrong. You never admit that you might have it wrong. And everyone else seems to be wrong, but not you. Jesus sees the multitudes, and I would dare say that among the multitudes there are those that are going to murder him. And terrorize him. And spit on him. And fashion a crown of thorns to twist into his head. He sees that over the city. Every single soul saved is one closer to the coming of his kingdom. 
And when that last Gentile, the times of the Gentiles comes in, the fullness of the Gentiles, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And you know, this prayer was so quickly answered, by the way. I don't want to develop it because we're out of time, but in verse 38, when Jesus says, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, you know what happens in chapter 10, verse 1? Laborers are sent into the harvest. That's how fast God can answer prayer. Then the, when he had called the 12 disciples to him, he gave them power uh, and the names of the apostles. And then verse 5, he sent them out. And here we are leaving a congregational meeting again, sent out. God's sending you out as I pray for more laborers tonight. So Father, we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to take root of our hearts. Forgive us, God, in the wandering of our own minds and our own thoughts, maybe carrying different narratives that don't reflect the gospel, the good news. Maybe we're perpetuating division ourselves or so caught up in the labor pains that we miss the baby. So caught up in the times and the seasons that we miss the arrival. We miss the godliness. We miss the holy conduct. We miss the, the, the praying uh, for the harvest. We miss the weeping over our city. And so forgive us, God, in those areas of our life. And bring about a greater sensitivity to the people you've allowed in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.